Hey, you're listening to Distributed Dialogues, a collaborative show between the Let's Talk Bitcoin network and Distributed Magazine. My name is Rick. And I'm Dave. And in each episode, we'll introduce you to the people who are using blockchain technology to change the way we interact with the world around us. As a currency, Bitcoin is not controlled or supported by a third-party entity such as a bank or a government. And while the idea of everyone using a currency that no one controls can seem chaotic and counterintuitive, many people see it as the best alternative to the Internet's current paradigm. Recently, it has been made clear that that paradigm is one where an online user's most intimate information can be readily accessed by third-party entities, such as Google and Facebook, and sold to companies with more nefarious goals, such as Cambridge Analytica. One great hope of blockchain technology is that it could help create a new version of the internet that puts control of privacy and trust back into the hands of its users. In this episode, we speak with David Chom, cryptographer and creator of DigiCash, Rebecca Lerner, executive vice president of the MAD Network, Ruben Yap, COO of Zcoin, and Patrick Byrne, CEO of Overstock.com and executive chairman of T0. First, We hear from Patrick Byrne on why trust is essential to a free and functioning society. Patrick also explains why current systems are failing their users and why blockchain technology could be as much a gift to democracy as its ending. Hi, I'm Patrick Byrne, CEO of Overstock and founder of Medici and a number of blockchain investments such as T0. So during your speech, you you, kind of hit on uh, what your Stanford professor had brought up about the two different types of uh, thinking, I guess? Thinking about how to design social institutions. What kind of society, do, how, how do you go about designing institutions for society? What are the ones, what are the advantages, or et cetera? Um, could, you, could you dig into those two different types of thought? Yeah, he called one the constrained vision, which views uh, basically uh, the co- information is costly to centralize. And if it's costly to centralize, then you would favor institutions that run on decentralized information, such as markets. Market runs on decentralized information as opposed to central planning. Uh, another one might, might be common law. Common law is actually comes, it, it arises from below. It's in a very decentralized way, as opposed to legislation from uh, on high and so forth. And a good emblem I put up of that, uh, of the people who see, who prefer sort of self-regulating, self-organizing systems would be a beehive. And the people who tend to see society, it, it, information is cheap to centralize, therefore let's have very centralized systems with commands coming from on high. That's the, symbolized by the Dilbert manager, the Dilbert point of hair manager. Did people even get that? Does your generation yeah, yeah, get that? Yeah, we got it. Okay. Yeah, the bald guy with the hair that sticks up like right. that. And he's, you know, he always thinks that he in his corner office knows what's best and has all the best information and therefore issues ridiculous orders. Well, that's very much the, uh, what you get out of social institutions that, such as uh, c- central planning of any type. About 15 years ago, uh, you got pretty angry at, at Wall Street. Can you explain that a little bit more to us? Sure. And I'm not sure I got angry so much as I was trying to sound an alarm. I, well, the, the bigger picture is I, we went public in 02. We started in 99, went public in 02, and we were, you know, when you're a public company CEO, you're out there in the mix. And you're out there with people who, at one point or another, I had various conversations, or I was at the receiving end of various conversations of the forum, you know, well, kid, if you're willing to play ball, we can make a lot of money together. And I started sort of mapping it out and trying to figure out, and a lot of it centered on mischief that's involved in the settlement system. Some of it centered on that. There's other kinds of mischief. And I got very concerned about the settlement system under the U.S. capital market. It's much more, people have no idea. It's, it's, it's not that anyone, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone today. It's, I mean, it's. Well, and so this is, 
I think you brought up the DTCC. Can, can you explain what the DTCC is? Yeah, in the 1960s, the system under which that did the settlement under Wall Street began collapsing. Volume quadrupled, the system couldn't keep up. And in 1971, they, they created a whole new way to settle stock. And it's, it, it reminds me of Jessica Rabbit, where she says, I'm not bad, I was just drawn this way. You know, some people just, it's not only was bad, but they, we just, they just drew a new system for the U.S. capital market where there'd be one central organization that everyone would plug into and just clear through it. And it created, not everyone plugs into it, just a select number of brokers do, and then other brokers plug into them, and you get this daisy chain for settlement. Well, it has different vulnerabilities in it. The SEC actually hired, I think he was a retired judge named Pollock in about 1986, and he wrote something called the Pollock Report that has been forgotten in history, but it basically was a report saying this has all kinds of vulnerabilities in it. What they did not realize is there are kind of ways to manipulate it as well. Anyway, it's a very vulnerable system. It did come apart in 2008. It's been made more robust since then. I think it still has... Uh, yeah, well, it's, it was the limits of the technology of the day. It's not that anyone was bad. It's just the limits of the technology of 1971. The industry wanted a peer-to-peer -peer settlement system, but the SEC, perhaps rightly, decided that technology couldn't allow it then. Well, now the blockchain has come along. We can finally have that peer-to-peer -peer electronic settlement system, which, for, which would bring the stock market. Am I ranting too much? Am yeah, I keep going. It would bring to stock markets just I gave the example of when you're a kid and I you know I buy a baseball glove from you for five dollars you know you hand the glove over I hand the five dollars over and we let go at the same time you know when you're a kid you learn to trade like that well imagine a capital market that instead of settlement being this arcane process very different from the trade itself delayed by two or three days and having all kinds of failure points within it. Instead of that, you could have a capital market that was just millions of little hands doing what I just described as kids. But, uh, you know, instead of doing it with baseball gloves, it's effectively doing it with securities. These little hands of cryptography are holding and releasing and so on and so forth, and there's no way anything can cheat it, be cheated. It's all algorithmic and and immutable and transparent, and it's you, can return, you could make a capital market be as honest and simple as that thing of when we're kids and we're just, you know, trading, um, buying a baseball glove off you. Uh, that would be a wonderful capital market. And with all, it would be far less vulnerable to systemic threats. It'd be far uh, less open to mischief. So we've been working on such a capital market for four years. It's pretty crazy to me, the significance. And, and, and this, this is T0. That's T0, yeah. And so I've heard uh, rightly or wrongly, T zero described in the media as being potentially being the New York Stock Exchange of cryptocurrency. Now, uh, can, Inshallah. can can you actually explain to what uh, T zero is, set, is setting out to become? Yeah, well, T zero is, is setting out to become the New York Stock Exchange of of crypto of of security tokens, okay. security tokens. Uh, actually, the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and the DTCC, and every other, uh, it's all, it combines a bunch of functions into one thing. See, the world, the best way to explain it, Bob Greifeld, of, of uh, the retired head of NASDAQ, said back in November, uh, how do you put it? It was something funny. He said that 100% f of stocks and bonds being issued today on Wall Street could be issued as tokens, and in five years, 100% will be issued as tokens. If he's right, that means that over five years, the system as we know it is going to be deprecated, as they say, or decrapitated, as some of us say in technology. It's, it's going to not become, it's going to just become a legacy system. What we have built is the next system that will be needed, the system that will trade tokens. And what tokens are, are think of ICOs, but ICOs that are not, I'm actually kind of discouraged. This is two marks against our community. You know, we started off with um, a bunch of people who got involved in Bitcoin were, you know. Silk Road. Silk Road type. Yeah. And now the second is we've invented this wonderful thing that can make securities absolutely clean and people have used it. I think a lot of these ICOs are extremely dodgy. 
Now, they may work out just because you can do so much with capital in this industry, but I think a lot of them are dodgy. So an ICO, but instead of it being some guy writes a term paper and puts it online and raises $40 million, it's a, a, a real company with, that, that's following the procedures that you have to follow when you raise capital. Uh, it, those, that's what security tokens are. And it's, it's the, the possibilities are just, you know, off the, uh, hard to imagine. So these would, be, these would be tokens that would follow SEC regulations? Yes. In fact, they might even be self-aware tokens. Self-aware tokens, or no, they call them reg-aware tokens. Regulation-aware tokens, much of the regulatory guardrail can be uh, programmed right into the token, so it can't be sold to the wrong guy. It can't be sold to somebody on the OLAP list of terrorists. It can't be sold to somebody who's not an accredited investor. Or and, and these kind of these kind of uh, directions would be a part of the smart contract. Right, correct. Okay. It's all built in. That would be a reg aware token. Okay. Um, and, and then I would just ask. Uh, uh, I I know you have a lot of background in philosophy. Um, from what I understand, you studied it as an undergrad, and then you also have two H two PhDs in philosophy. Is that correct? No, one PhD. One PhD. I, one PhD. Well, I have a master's from Cambridge as a Marshall Fellow, and then I came back and did the doctorate at Stanford. Um, so, uh, what was your PhD on? In philosophy? Well, it was in uh, arguably it was in political philosophy, kind of the boundary of political philosophy, jurisprudence, and economics. What it really was was for an excuse for me to learn the intellectual history of the U.S. Constitution and then paste it together in some arguments that I could use to make a, a point, but it was really, uh, I, I really wanted to learn that. I do have a question, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in your, your speech you gave, it was almost an aside where you said, in the future you hope the government still is a government that needs to obtain consent from the people and what it does. Can you elaborate on the idea? Yeah, well, I'm a, uh, I'm not speaking just of the U.S. I'm speaking of this new age coming to mankind is, that's coming on a blockchain. It's, the technology is so good, I can't imagine it not coming and disrupting everything that, as we know it over the next five or ten years. <coughs> however, it, uh, however, it brings with it some risk. I always remind you young fellas, you young whippersnappers, I guess I'm suffering from old, creeping old fartism. But remember the lesson of Frankenstein was that, you know, Frankenstein wasn't the monster. The monster was the monster. Frankenstein was the doctor, the young scientist who was so excited about what he could build that he didn't think about the, uh, the possible ramifications. I think that, uh, I hope that the new age coming to mankind is stays one where consent of the governed matters. I'm afraid that the, that, you know, I used to think Orwell was wrong. Orwell thought that advanced technology was going to increase the edge you know, or give authoritarianism an edge. He turned out to be wrong in the 1980s, you know, with some mimeograph machines took down the Eastern Bloc. Uh, and certainly the, the Internet, well. So I, uh, but I'm afraid that we may re have found a technology that could increase authoritarian uh, you know, and then, then it's authoritarianism. And I worry about, frankly, this technology. I mean, you may have your doubts about the West, but I don't want this technology built on, on any or dominated by any country, especially any country that has an authoritarian uh, philosophy. So uh, I think that the opportunity, as I said on stage, that there's it, a year or two ago, even a year ago, when I talked to talk, talk to people about blockchain voting, no, two years ago certainly, people, I, I thought that might be one of the most obvious applications, and instead there were very, very little interest in, in it. Now we're living in a world, I hope, where people understand we really want to, it's amazing to me, amazing to me how much rubber there is in our voting system here in America. If the core DNA of our society is supposed to be consent of the governed as manifested through voting, people have no idea how much corruption there is in that and do not believe anybody who tells you that there's not 
massive vote distortions on probably on both sides. It's whoever owns the vote, whoever, whatever machine runs the neighborhood voting booth. There's, you absolutely, that's why there are voting uh, observers. You absolutely have to watch the votes get counted. Of course there's cheating. I don't, I think that we should have a much, and you know, cheating can come, voter suppression can come in lots of ways. It can come from trying to intimidate people. It can also come from just voting uh, empty ballots that, that outweigh other people. And you know, it seems quite suspicious to me how, you know, let's look into it and some people say, well, I don't know of any evidence that it's happening, and, uh, and so let's not even look into it. Well, you know, in fact, it's, it's so shallow. There was some years ago, there was a graduate student in, I think, like San Diego, who did a very weak graduate paper that then ended up being cited by everybody who, everybody who wants to say this doesn't go on, quote, quotes this one, you know, quotes this one source, and all traced back to this one terrible graduate, you know, like master's degree, which is a very, I think it's really quite a big problem, and anyone who works in politics at the grassroots level has experienced what I'm talking about. It's, your people are kidding themselves to say that there is not mass voting uh, games, and I believe it's both sides. It's whoever can get away with it is getting away from, with it, and it depends on which machine, which party owns that particular precinct. And most of the precincts are essentially owned by one, and they get to they get to run the machines and the counting process. And there's all kinds of cheating. All of that should be clued, trued up with blockchain. To end all this, um, uh, can you name three philosophical heroes? One would be Tom Sowell, the guy of whom I spoke from the stage, Thomas Sowell, Don Hoover. One would be Hayek, uh, Milton Friedman uh, would be my, my, my first three. I'd have to, I, 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 I have to name, throw Nietzsche in there, only for the writing. He's actually, you know, only, his writing is so phenomenal, but he's a, you know, he ended up being a, a terrible, I think he's a, I think he's terrible, but uh, uh, he, was, he was the best writer ever in philosophy. When the Bitcoin white paper was first issued, one of its greatest perceived values was the promise of anonymous transactions. Though Bitcoin is not completely anonymous, blockchain technology does offer better solutions for online users to control their data, especially when it's being used by advertisers. Rebecca Lerner of the MAD Network speaks to us in a sponsored interview about how MAD is working to provide its users with the power to control how advertisers can engage with them. So thanks for having me, guys. Um, well, MAD Network, uh, originally we had really started thinking about um, how we could use blockchains in, in a variety of enterprise applications. And one of the spaces that we were really interested in was, was media and advertising. And advertising, uh, the programmatic landscape today, if you talk to anybody who's in the space, will pr probably say something like, uh, the space is totally broken, there's zero trust, um, there's no transparency in the space. Um, and for a number of reasons, uh, including that one, and it's got very large, robust market size, um, we decided to kind of start, start looking into how blockchain blockchains could apply to that space, and it really is kind of a, a match made in heaven. It's very well, um, well suited for blockchain use. Um, so one of the major problems in the space has to do with trust, um, and there's no transparency between parties. Um, and so to be able to actually leverage blockchain in a distributed way, in an open source way, um, provides the kind of trust that you can only achieve from a blockchain um, without having to really rely on large walled gardens of data, which is really like kind of the bread and butter of the advertising industry right now. And can you just give a high level explanation of what programmatic advertising is, just for laymen? <laughs> sure. Um, so programmatic advertising is basically uh, digital advertising, right? So you see a banner ad um, on a website or a pre-roll video um, or any of that. And really the way that that used to be done, right, is that is that certain types of people were interested in certain types of content. Um, and lo long ago, maybe 10 years ago plus, there were these ideas called ad networks. And so you used to basically... Um, 
you would put your advertisement on an ad network that was for travel, right, a travel ad network, for people who were interested in travel products, right? Now, with the, with the advent of big data and targeting, um, what happens is all of your data, all of, the, all of your personal data, right, is housed in these, um, in these databases in the, in the middle. And basically what happens is when marketers want to target you, they pay to access your data, and then they target you based on what types of information that you look at. So, for example, if they want to find if they want to find moms who buy green, they pay for each mom who buys green. They and they're able to track you against your device, all of these different everywhere you surf, right? You surf the web, um, and they can they can present you with an ad because of, they know who you are and where you are um, at, at, at every time during the day. Um, and that's one of the big challenges around um, around advertising is how do you how do you allow for privacy in the space um, while at the same time allowing for um, advertisers to effectively target their audience? Yeah, and can you uh, give a brief explanation of how the MAD network is going to take customers or I guess the users of data and allow those users to control that data as opposed to uh, giving it all to an advertiser? Sure. I mean, one of the things that we, we feel very strongly about is privacy. We're a, very, we're a privacy first organization. Um, and we believe that, like they purport in the EU, that privacy is a human right. Um, and in order to do that, you have to basically give self-sovereignty back to the back to the user, so give them give them control of their data again, right? Because right now you have no control over your data. Your data, they know everything about you. Um, and so in order to do that, um, we're basically pushing the data from the middle to the edges and, and, and using cryptography to allow, um, to allow advertisers to target you as a user without knowing anything about you. Um, and so that's one of, the, one of the ways that we can leverage cryptography to kind of uh, to provide the same or better levels of targeting without having to ever expose you or who, who you are, where you are, et cetera. Um, but we can still prove that something was actually, so that you can actually prove that an ad was viewed um, or, or clicked or any of those things. Um, and going back to what the EU said about data being a basic human right, could you explain that a little bit more, maybe sure. just in your terms or? Sure. I mean, the idea from in the EU is that they, they passed a law called GDPR, the Global Data Protection Regulation, right? And the idea is that, um, that everyone has the right to be forgotten. Um, and what that means is that um, if that that they can basically opt out, <laughs> that you, you as a user can opt out from any company. So a company has to, if I as, a, if I as an EU citizen, right, say to um, a uh, company operating in the European Union, I no longer want you to have my data, they have to, they have to delete your data everywhere and they can't use that data to target you. So it basically says that I should, I should as an individual, have the right to to know where my data lives um, and to be able to take that, take the rights to use that data back, right? So I should own the data about myself. And so you said uh, it's along the lines of having the right to be able to opt out yeah. from a company when you want to. Can you explain um, maybe what the repercussions of not being able to opt out would be? Yeah, so like, I mean, I think one of the best ways that people have now realized how data is being used is um, is the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal, right? What what happened with that? That was just a basic everyday, like the, what Cambridge Analytica did, um, and the way that that data was obtained was at any average Tuesday in ad tech. Um, it wasn't like a special circumstance. They didn't they didn't really operate outside of the rules necessarily. The guy the guy who wrote the app, right, who which which obtained the data. Um, basically what what I think people are now realizing is that I could join a group that is for um, like I could join a Weight Watchers group on Facebook, right? Like like that page. And then a fast food <laughs> producer, right? A fast food company might actually target me because I'm in a Weight Watcher. They might use that data against me, right? And target me to go to eat fast food, which clearly I'm not. I'm probably not inclined to want to do, but might might be inclined to do naturally, right? Because I'm in the because I'm in the Weight Watchers group, or they might make that assumption about me, right? Which is kind of what happened. Um, 
I think, well, what, what we think happened in the election, right, is that people signed up for some kind of, they took some kind of uh, test or, you know, like, uh, you know, are you most like this baseball player, right? Um, and they find out they're most like uh, Barry Bonds, right? And that was actually then, that information was then used against, against them or to get them to do something that they may feel was not morally in their wheelhouse, right? So like the, what happened in the election. And that now they realize that that may have happened to them and people are unhappy about it, right? So I think it's taken kind of a, it's taken that kind of pushing people to a point where they realize that they may have been, um, that, that information about them may have been used in ways that they may find morally repugnant <laughs> um, and that and therefore, they are now caring more about how their data is used and where their data is, where their data lives. So, could you just conclude by telling me um, where the Mad Network is on its current roadmap? Sure. So, we'll be releasing a, a new technical white paper that kind of explains how how the protocol works and how we, you know, all of our governance, how all of that, how all of that works. We're kind of doing a, an update to all of that. Um, so we'll be releasing that shortly, and then we're going to be releasing a bunch of um, code libraries. Um, so we're kind of, I would say, um, a little bit far away from going from from having something that is uh, like leverageable externally, um, but we're getting close to that point, and we're moving into a bunch of POCs with some big partners, big agency agency and brand partners. Can you can you tell me any of the names of those partners and those POCs? Sure. Yeah. So, like we we announced at Can Lions that we're doing we're doing a bunch of um, a bunch of POCs with uh, with Omnicom, uh, WPP, um, Publicis, and a, a bunch of others, um, and then some some other large brands like um, actually which I can't unfortunately mention, but a bunch of their clients. So, great. Th well, thank you for coming to talk with us today, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Even as the internet was being created, cryptographers and computer scientists alike saw the need to defend online privacy to maintain a free and open society. One of these early thinkers was David Chom. Chom recognized that privacy is a basic human right and that governments, corporations, and other entities should not be expected to protect privacy for online users. Hi, I'm uh, David Chom. I'm the uh, widely known for having invented electronic money, but uh, numbers that are money and launching that out into the world with the DigiCash company. Uh, but I've created a lot of other kinds of uh, cryptographic stuff too and had a lot of fun doing it, as well as I've been very active in uh, trying to get electronic voting uh, out there and, and get it, uh, you know, really taken advantage of uh, properly. Uh, David, could you tell me about the origins of DigiCash? Well, 1981, I gave a, a paper at the first uh, conference on cryptography sponsored by the International Association of Cryptographic Research, which I had founded that same year. And that paper, I showed that a number could be worth money. This is the first time that anyone had proposed what I call the digital bearer instrument. That's like these, uh, uh, you know, like what we see now is so popular in the blockchain. And um, I was concerned with privacy and criminal use of payment systems in those days. The Bank for International Settlement defined criminal use as extortion, uh, black markets, and bribery. Now. You may not agree with all those things, but some of them probably you don't like, and especially when it's done to you. And so I, I made this new kind of electronic money based on what I call the blind signature, which is a way that you can withdraw it from the bank in a hidden form, unhide it. Now you have the bank's validating digital signature on a number that you made up that they never saw, and then when you spend it, the merchant or shop or person receives it can send it into the bank and they will validate it and say, yes, we must have signed this. Of course, we don't know who we signed it for, but we have to honor it because it has our digital signature. And so we're going to uh, 
uh, except that is in the payment and deposit the money to the account of the merchant. Um, so the group you're with, um, could you tell me more about that? Was this a your company or a group of oh, cryptographers? Well, um, so I, I ran what was the like leading research group in cryptography for um, a number of years, um, and we had uh, visiting uh, professors who were on their sabbaticals, uh, usually for like a year, and then we had so-called postdocs for a year or two, and we had graduate students and then undergraduates even, so it was a uh, quite a, a broad spectrum uh, research group on cryptography that I founded in Amsterdam and there were three of us there in Lumini at the time that was uh, the other two were uh, Professor Gilles Brassard from the University of Montreal and his best graduate student Claude Crepeau. And we had been working on this stuff together in Amsterdam, and we went down there uh, to share our ideas with the community. I, I know you were working in Amsterdam for a while. Also, your your beginning of a lot of this, a lot of cryptography started in at Berkeley, from what I understand. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm interested. Um, could you explain uh, about a little more about your time at Berkeley, and also? Um, the the uh, at this point um, highly like talked about mailing list that started out in the I guess late 80s early 90s the cypherpunks. When I got to Berkeley, there wasn't any cryptography research going on there. I um, I would give was given a four-year Regents graduate fellowship. Uh, they only give one every two years, so I got it and I could do whatever I wanted. Uh, the guy who was a professor there and did some work in cryptography, Jim Reed, bailed out and went to work at a secret government laboratory called IDA. And so he wasn't going to be there when I arrived. And another guy who was interested in policy issues and, and security, uh, Lance Hoffman, he also was no, no longer worked there. He'd moved to uh, George Washington University. And so um, Ralph Merkel, who had arguably invented, uh, well, famous for the Merkel trees, mm -hmm. but also invented a kind of public key cryptography based on puzzles. Um, also, no longer worked there. He was uh, joined Marty Hellman's group at Stanford. So when I got there, there wasn't anyone in cryptography, but I. Uh, was very interested in it and found various professors to uh, help me and to work with me and um, various other people started coming through who were interested in, in cryptography uh, from Israel and from Boston and uh, you know it's research in, in the area started to, to, to build up and uh, um, so um, you know, even then there was an, a, a kind of a more applied sort of systems-y part of it and a more theory part. And I, you know, liked the more applied part because I wanted to do stuff with cryptography to protect people's privacy. And uh, um, most of the other people were more interested in the more the theoretical aspects. but. Uh, how, how did you find how did you find uh, other like-minded individuals who are interested in other types of uh, privacy tools? I guess what I'm I'm sort of asking to let, lead up to how did you find yourself on the cypherpunk email? I think it's more fair to say that the cypherpunks found me yeah. than I found them. So most of the basis for things that they were interested in cryptographic was my came from my work so um yeah i think it it it, it, it happened more like that can you kind of explain um what that group was interested in as far as uh, i mean it sounds like the commonality you had you shared with them was privacy tools but could you elaborate on that at all well i mean i think that 
the cypherpunks, you know, became a kind of a social movement that became global at a certain moment, and uh, its it scope went beyond uh, information technology. And you know, so I, I'm curious: have you did, did you ever have a, any sort of like um, epiphany moment like that? You know, people talk a lot about that for your work. Well, there is this uh, BBC uh, video, which uh, maybe you've seen it, uh, that uh, shows me driving a VW uh, micro camper van, you know, uh, around. And uh, so it is true that I did come up with kind of the third, you know, and the, which was the missing ingredient in my whole proposal for how people could protect all their information online uh, unconditionally, so even against a government that had infinite computing power, and that was the so-called dining cryptographer's protocol. Uh, I came up with that while uh, driving from Berkeley down to my uh, new gig at teaching at, at UC Santa Barbara in my micro bus. So, you know, sometimes when you're just kind of, I know you're, so it's sort of on autopilot, but you're, I mean, you're supposed to be paying attention. I don't want to give any bad advice to uh, <laughs> drivers, but I mean, you kind of, there's a weird kind of concentration uh, ability to think ab about other things while you're on the highway and it's, the weather's nice and there's not a lot of traffic and, uh, and you know, traveling through nice scenery. So I, that's about as close as I would. I did want to ask you about something you said yesterday, though, and correct me if I'm wrong when I say that in your speech you mentioned that voting or elections are too important for government to have total control of. Can you speak or expand a little bit more on that idea and how you think the tools that you helped create can perhaps alleviate uh, total governmental control over democracy? Well, when I, when I say that voting is perhaps too important to be left exclusively to government. I'm thinking about uh, some motivation for some of the new techniques which I've developed, which I call random sample voting. And the, just like I believe, um, excuse me, I believe it was uh, John Gilmore who is, is attributed to having said, the internet just routes around censorship. So I think of, uh, I was trying to find a voting system that could kind of route around election officials after, because I developed a much less expensive and far more secure uh, polling place voting system which we deployed in Tacoma Park, Maryland in, for the municipal elections, mayor, governor, uh, mayor, uh, city councils in the different districts and ballot questions in 2009 and again in 2011 by invitation, far less expensive voter experience. They loved it, but uh, which we, we have all the survey results and everything, but election officials weren't keen to uh, adopt this. And that you know, was basically my, what I like to call my Satoshi moment. Mm -hmm. That's when I realized that, wait a minute, just because you have something better doesn't mean that the powers that be are gonna rush to adopt it. So uh, I tried for some years to actually, it's embarrassing to say, uh, find a way to do something like voting that wouldn't require governmental approval. And the thing that, that I uh, have settled on is the random sample voting. And I put together uh, a team of about 24 uh, members of the scientific board, and we've written the software and rewritten it five times. A couple of people who wrote earlier versions became professors, I guess in part based on that work, and now it's running uh, in the cloud, and we've run test elections at various security conferences, and most recently, the first binding election uh, for the Council of Europe at their annual democracy uh, conference in Strasbourg uh, 2018. So, yeah. Um, for those of us who do not work in cryptography, uh, can you just give, give us a high-level explanation of what makes a good cryptographer? I would say there's two main kinds of cryptography 
like when viewed from that perspective, uh, I think one is uh, sort of breaking conventional codes. That's a whole specialty uh, in and of itself. And uh, the other one that I find really significant uh, is designing and also evaluating the security of what are called cryptographic protocols, which have a dynamic aspect where one party does one thing and sends it and there are other parties, and there may be third parties, additional parties. It has a, uh, a, a much more um, interactive and uh, uh, you know, temporal dimension. Um, and what I've found is that you could take the most brilliant mathematicians uh, and I've had some people, you know, way smarter than me, uh, you know, in my groups, uh, it may take them six months to maybe at the outside a year to really start to get the feeling for this dynamic stuff. It's very different from staring at a bunch of uh, like equations and closed forms and uh, more traditional uh, mathematical stuff. It, it, it has much more of a a game theoretic time-based aspect. It's a very different way of thinking. I don't know if there are people that are born thinking that way. Uh, usually my experience is, yeah, people have to learn it. Thanks for talking to us, David. Really appreciate it. Hey, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Rounding us out, we speak with Ruben Yap of Zcoin, a Malaysia-based project working on supporting private financial transactions. Hi, um, I'm Ruben from Zcoin. I'm the COO. Yeah. We wanted to start out just by hearing a little bit more about yourself, maybe how you got into this space, um, and how Zcoin is doing these days, and a little bit more about the company as well. Sure. Well, uh, I got into uh, cryptocurrencies in maybe like 2012, 2013. Um, was actually probably the first merchant in Malaysia to actually accept uh, cryptocurrencies because I used to run a VPN service and um, they were told, telling me why aren't you you know accepting Bitcoin I thought it was oh what's this funny money and that's how I just went down that path there uh, I joined Zcoin I guess about almost like a few weeks after launch which was what it was around like October 2016, uh, and we were primarily uh, we're focused on, I guess, two pillars, which uh, is privacy, uh, and um, the other element is about a fair proof of work. Uh, so I guess that's it in a nutshell. Mm. Well, tell me a little bit more about, you said, like, you had people approach you as a merchant, like a VPN merchant, especially dealing with sort of like online privacy. It would almost seems natural that Bitcoin would be involved. Tell us a little bit more about um, what that looked like in sort of the earlier stages. In the early stages, it was quite fun, like, um, you know, because we were seen as a niche provider. I mean, we weren't like a really big VPN provider. I mean, we were probably the, the largest in Southeast Asia. Uh, but what, what really set us apart is that we really, um, you know, put a focus on privacy. And when people like say, oh, you know, what's the point of having all this privacy and you aren't allowing us to pay privately? And that's, of course, that time everyone thought Bitcoin was anonymous and they just told me you should accept Bitcoin. So I actually, we didn't have any options in Malaysia and how to convert that back into Ringgit Malaysia, so I had to find someone in Singapore to actually buy the the Bitcoin off me, and unfortunately didn't hold much from there. I was just selling it all off. But I guess it's like a typical story, and you know, uh, it was just a way. I thought like the ticket sizes were like ten bucks. You know, what could I lose? And yeah, I think I was just accepting it without understanding the technology very much. Yeah. Well, and tell me a little bit more about, I guess, generally the topic of privacy. I mean, like you've been involved in it from the beginning with VPN and now with uh, Zcoin, but talk to me a little bit more about what that means to you and the people that use your product. You know, I think one of the sort of like misconceptions I would kind of like to dispel is that, 
You know, we always, when people talk about privacy, they always associate it with illicit activity, like drug activity, and especially with Bitcoin and Silk Road, all this type of things. And I find it's quite unfortunate, and especially like even the lead, the leading privacy coin now, like Monero, has been like really proud about like you know dark market usage and things like that. But I think um, in the past few, maybe even just past year or so, with like scandals such as Cambridge Analytica, that people are realizing, wow, you know, I really maybe should be taking note of how I protect my my privacy online. And that really hasn't happened in blockchain yet. Everyone's like, oh, why do I need privacy online or on Bitcoin? But, you know, as we know, like all transactions on Bitcoin are completely public and also permanent. And of course, it's only pseudonymous in the sense that you don't know who might control what addresses. But what people don't realize, they are blockchain analysis firms that their entire job is to find how much you own and who you've been transacting with. And you can do this just through statistics and like transaction graph analysis quite easily. And I think it's only a matter of time before like a similar type of like Cambridge Analytica type of thing arises and you realize that, hey, you know, in traditional type of money systems like banking, we, we do have a basic expectation of privacy. I kind of look what's in your bank account. And similarly, if you want to be like a global currency, you need at least that level of privacy. And that's what Zcoin sets out to do. Not necessarily illicit activity, but general privacy, I suppose. Yeah. Sure. And you, you, you brought up like an interesting piece of, uh, I guess, like the American discussion around privacy online and the role of cryptocurrencies <coughs> with Silk Road. You know, it's infamous now and it's almost become not almost, but it has become a very political topic with people taking sides. Yes. Have you found that at least in uh, America had, is the same sort of argument taking place uh, in Malaysia or uh, in y'all's markets as well? What is the sort of, I guess, political discussion look like around cryptocurrencies? Like, I think right now, I mean, being really honest, especially in Asian markets, even in like so-called more sophisticated markets like Korea, um, the primary use case or not really even use case of cryptocurrencies is how to get rich. I mean, this is reality. People see it as an investment platform. Uh, with varying degrees of knowledge, but most see it as a way to get rich. Um, you know, privacy isn't really, you know, really thought of as a, as a really big thing, uh, which is unfortunate um, because this is how, like, oppressive governments retain control. Uh, you know, I mean, Malaysia just is just starting to, like, you know, awaken with, like, political maturity. We recently seen our first shift into like the opposition uh, well now now they're the first change in government and we haven't really seen that in many southeast asian countries and i think once people are more cognizant that hey they actually have a choice and that privacy actually matters uh, that they're not, they don't just have to be you know scared about the governments and stuff then maybe we'll have more like knowledge about privacy in general but right now it's still kind of you know, uh, I think a lot of people have been painting privacy as a negative thing, but I think that's slowly changing, maybe in the next five years or so. Yeah. And can you explain a little bit about the uh, current political shift in Malaysia? And for so those are our listeners who might not know as well. So uh, Malaysia achieved independence in 1957, and we have never seen a change of government. Uh, it's been with this party called Barisan National, which has been controlling us for, 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 for as long as we can remember. And uh, what just happened was um, that for the very first time, the opposition took control, but it's a bit of a interesting situation because the guy heading the opposition used to be the, the head of, uh, he used to be the prime minister of Malaysia on the other side. So it's like opposition, but at the same time, we're getting our prime minister, which is, he's now 90 plus years old. Uh, and he was like the longest standing prime minister in Malaysia. So it's like same, same, but different. I, I really don't know. But I guess the fact that we can change government, it's just an important fact in itself. Yeah. 
Well, related to uh, what you were saying in regards to sort of a Malaysian political awakening, whether or not, you know, it's a full one, um, since it could be a return to the same. But when you're talking to people about privacy, how do you engage them in that discussion that they might not be super interested in, even though it's a very integral part of cryptocurrency discussions? Um, And you say most people, and I'd say even here, most people think of crypto as a way to just get money quickly um, and use it as a, you know, explosive investment. So how do you engage people on the deeper discussions and more meaningful ones of the sort of effects and purposes of privacy? Well, I always ask people, what do you consider the most private things about your life? Like, you know, perhaps it's my physical location or like, you know, what I'm doing right now, my emails, my communications and Ranking very high up that there is actually financial privacy, my, you know, how much I own, my assets and what I'm spending on. And once they realize that, hey, you know, sometimes I don't even tell my wife how much I own or what I'm spending on. Then it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that kind of makes sense. You know, blockchain privacy, if I'm going to have payments, I, I want a certain degree of privacy. Then it starts connecting with them. Like, do you want everyone to know how much you own or do you want to know how uh, you know how you spend your money and you may have nothing to hide but it's just really inconvenient like you know everyone knowing everything about you and i think once you start going down that narrative rather than just starting with privacy but asking them to you what do you consider the most private things in your life and then that light bulb just clicks so yeah that's how i've been uh, doing it right but, and tell us a little bit more, I guess, generally about what your market looks like uh, in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Um, and for listeners here in America that might not be too familiar with um, Asian crypto markets, how to even approach that discussion as well? If it is different, you know. Um, well, in Malaysia, we went through, a, like, I mean, obviously our community isn't as big as, let's say, you know, like South Korea. And I think awareness is still generally quite low. I think it's more like upper upper middle class uh, people who educated, you know, and know enough to, to invest. There's, I guess, I guess there's two, there's even actually like, even the poor people and the uneducated have some exposure to, to crypto, but obviously it's the scammy ones. Um, we are, I'm really like, I think just like two or three years back, even now, uh, all the like crypto so-called conferences or like talks introducing people to Bitcoin were most likely Ponzi or MLM scams. And they will start talking about Bitcoin and then saying, we are the next Bitcoin. And and that's how it, it relates to that. And that's still happening right now. But I do think that there's... Uh, we're starting to see a bit more maturity now that people are like, okay, yeah, you know, I've never heard of you, of you, you know, you're not listed on any big exchanges. I was, um, right now, like in KL, there's meetups like every week um, and with greater numbers and like educated people joining it, I do think that slowly we are seeing like, you know, the scams kind of get weeded out of this circus. But in the rural areas, they are still being targeted, like especially when you combine cryptocurrency with some sort of religious element, like um, oh, we are like um, we're Sharia compliant, uh, you know, we are dinar because uh, it's like the Islam believes in the gold standard and stuff like that. Then it kind of sucks people in again, and they even have like some local ustas, uh, you know, endorsing it. Uh, that's still happening, but um, I think. A couple of them have been burned and they're quite high profile burns. So hopefully that's going to be less. But there's always going to be a level of this type of things happening. But I do think we are slowly maturing. I guess one step behind, let's say, the West. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about while we're sitting here? Anything else you'd like to say? Well, you know, one of the things I really feel like, okay, besides being a privacy coin, uh, you know, one of the things that has been um, growing, growing kind of uh, consensus is the, the, the topic of ASIC resistance. 
and you know like Dave Vorick from SIA uh, you know he was talking made a really good argument of why ASICs resistance is futile like you can never get there and similarly, we, we saw Zcash, uh, which Equihash was supposed to be like ASIC resistant. Um, then now they're embracing ASICs as well. So it seems like everyone has given up ASIC resistance. Maybe Monero hasn't quite yet. Um, but I really want to kind of come up with like a counter argument to that. So uh, to understand, do, you, do should I go through like what ASIC resistance is? Sure, maybe just for a second. Yeah, so, so um, you know, ASICs are basically specialized machines that do mining very, very well uh, because they only designed to do one thing. And therefore, like an ASIC, like a Bitcoin ASIC is several thousands times much more efficient than a GPU. As a result, the only thing that can mine Bitcoin effectively is an ASIC machine. Now, the problem that that means is that whoever produces the machines, like I think Bitmain probably controls about like, 80% of the new hardware taped out or something like that basically controls who can get the new bitcoins that are arriving in the world and that of course affects distribution that means only those who can invest in these machines or make these machines can get the new coins your new distribution is effectively stop on unless you buy it off the exchange um, now there's some benefits to ASICs because once you develop ASIC they cannot switch your mining power to different coins and uh, you know it's more locked in it's a more stable type of investment but as a distribution mechanism and about like you know spreading your coin to as many people as possible ASICs are, are pretty bad in that regard so why we are pursuing ASIC resistance first, first of all we we don't want we want anyone to be able to participate in like let's say a Z coin economy where I can just use my existing hardware at home and just mine. I'm not going to be super rich, but at least I get something. And I'm, you know, I'm not at, I'm not at a severe disadvantage with those people who who can take advantage of economies of scale. Uh, and I guess the, the the other thing is like you know, compared to like smart contract platforms where we're always talking about TPS performance, it's not so important. Well, it's not as important in a currency where where things like distribution are much more important. And that's why I say like proof of work with a these uh, like a like a, um, a fair type of system to everyone can participate, not centralized type of control is really important as well. Um, so at Zcoin we 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 developed this uh, mining algorithm called MTP, it's Mercury Proofs, and we want to bring back the days where you could mine with your computer, and it's very hard to develop a specialized machine on that. Now, of course, the argument is that ASICs, the way things that you can always design an ASIC for anything, and therefore, why should you be aiming for an ASIC resistant coin? For example, so remember with Bitcoin, we're seeing several thousand times of increase. Litecoin, who was, who was supposed to be ASIC resistant, has an ASIC. Then we also see Monero also has an ASIC. Equihash also has an ASIC. Almost all the major coins now has an ASIC. So that's the argument, the saying. Why, why are we pursuing ASIC resistance? But if you take a look at the efficiency gains from ASICs right now, they are dropping. Like with Bitcoin, it used to be a thousand times, several thousand times. With Litecoin, it's several hundred times. Then you're taking a look at like Monero, maybe 20 times or something like that. Then Equihash five times, Fhash two times. So you're seeing the efficiency of ASICs as a multiple are going down and this is I think mostly because of the use of large amounts of memory and MTP uses a large large amounts of memory like 4 gigabytes of RAM which is our reference implementation up to maybe like 10 gigabytes of RAM and traditionally ASIC resistance also kind of affected um, gave rise to a different type of centralization. So Monero was for a very long time ASIC resistant, but what happened was botnets were mining it. They were all people with infected computers were mining uh, Monero for whoever controlled the botnet. And that's also a form of centralization. What MTP does is because of the large memory requirements, if your computer is infected, you're going to see that large memory usage is going to slow down. And in theory, hopefully, the person is going to notice that, okay, my computer is infected, let's do something about it. So I guess the MTP is quite interesting in that we combine 
you know, ASIC resistant, botnet resistant, while remaining lightweight enough to verify by everyone. Uh, and I do think it's too early to give up the ASIC resistance fight because this is like new technology and we are actually seeing that multiple dropping. So yeah, you know, I, I would say that, you know, with Zcash going down that route, um, you know, with the launch of MTP, we'll be probably seeing all this like home miners hopefully switching to us to, to you know, get a, a piece of Zcoin, yeah. Well, where can interested people go to engage uh, with Zcoin or find y'all? Uh, well, I mean, our website, that's at zcoin.io. We are really uh, active on Twitter, uh, at Zcoin Official. And our um, Telegram group recently is like, we, we have like 13,000 users there. Uh, it's at Zcoin Project. So yeah, these are the best ways to get in touch of because zcoin.io has all those links. Yeah. Well, Ruben, thanks so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you and I'm glad you could uh, come in today. Thanks so much. Cryptocurrency is probably not the perfect answer to the millennia-old issue of protecting one's identity, be it digital or not, but it certainly gets us closer to a future where people have more personal control. For now, Big Brother is still on the ropes. Again, this is Dave and Rick. Thanks for listening to Distributed Dialogues. We hope you'll tune in next time when we'll be discussing governments and regulation in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, agree or disagree, the Grateful Dead was the first decentralized rock band. Oh, yeah. And what they did, they were the first ones that said not only go, uh, they didn't try to stop you from recording their concerts, they created systems that you could jack, people would show up with their own you know, recorders and jack into their recorder. They made it easy for, they let there be this whole secondary culture that, that rose up around it.